Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Happy New Year, Sherry. Happy New Year. How you doing on that last Christmas cookie you're choking down over there? <laughs> it was delicious. You know... Good thing there are no more Christmas cookies in the house. It's kind of funny. Yeah, right. It's kind of funny to be releasing these podcasts on the actual holidays. We just have stuck with our Monday schedule for release, and that made a Christmas Day podcast and now a New Year's Day podcast. Truth is, we're doing the recording before Christmas even happened. Do you feel like a fraud? Now you, you make like me sound like a liar. I was joking because at full confession, as you were like, "Hey, let's record the podcast," I was like, shoving <laughs> a cookie in my mouth as I came in here, and I was like, oh, "I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm almost done." No, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think it's fun to release episodes on the holiday, and I think it's fun to get a little bit ahead like this. Completely unlike us, we are usually. Hand to mouth, like we hit the turn off recording button uh, just right before they go out. But we did get a little ahead so we can have a little R&R, a &R, little peace and restfulness over the holidays, which uh, hasn't started quite yet. We're, we're still in the hustle and bustle, but that week in between is going to be glorious. And uh, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. It's whether it's whether you listen on the day of the release or you listen later, one way or the other, it's 2024 now, and uh, we hope it's getting off to a good start from for you. A couple of things we want to mention before we get into our topic. First of all, a reminder to everyone that our book Sober Evolution is now on sale. If I figured out how to do it right, but <laughs> I, I think I, I think I should figure it out. It is now on sale for 99 cents in the Kindle version on Amazon. So we encourage you to buy a copy, even if you've already read it, even if you don't care to read it, even if you never open it. Uh, it just really helps us with publication of our second coming soon book uh, to have really good statistics from book number one. And so it's been out for three and a half years. It's time for us to, uh, I don't know, stop holding firm on the the realistic pricing that we've had and offer it for 99 cents and see if we can get our friends, our supporters to do us a solid, drop a dollar and help us with our uh, sales numbers. So 99 cents, Sober Evolution, and uh, we'd really appreciate it if you would be kind enough to buy that. Listener questions. We are we appreciate all those who over the last couple of weeks have sent listener questions in. Keep them coming. We're starting with a new batch for 2024, kind of wiping the slate clean. And uh, we've got a good number already that we're excited to address, but there's always room for more. So please send your listener questions to matt at soberandunashamed.com. And the last thing we want to promote, we've got some really fun ideas for podcast episodes for the new year. We didn't want to waste any of these good ideas over the holidays. That sounds bad, doesn't it? But I just know people are so busy over the holidays. They get out of their regular routines and people don't necessarily listen every week that, that do during the normal times. So it's just been me and you yapping for several weeks now. But we've got some really good ideas and some things lined up 
the first thing that's lined up that I will go, I feel confident enough to go ahead and mention is we are going to have our good friend Amber Hollingsworth from the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel back on the podcast. This will be the third time she's been on our podcast, fifth time in total that we've collaborated with Amber, which is really exciting. And this one is going to be a rumble. <laughs> Me and Amber, we're going to rumble. And you are going to be the referee. Oh, I hate that. Or the moderator. What, what would you like to call yourself? I don't know. I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know if I want to be there. I don't like that. Well, you're the I know. She she is very excited about it, but when you approached me, I was like, "Oh, you guys aren't like going to like be combative or nasty or anything." Like, no, cuz she is lovely and sweet and she was like so excited about doing it. She wants to rumble. <laughs> so do I. You're the only one that wants this to be, you know, friendly. We're going to go. Yeah, we're going to. Yeah, well, bell's going to ding and Oh, we should make sure to get a bell. Oh, yeah, we got to get a bell. Yeah. Good yeah. idea. But you're going to be the moderator. You're going to ask questions. Okay. The yeah. the This was inspired by the fact that we there are a lot of areas in which we see eye to eye with Amber. We have experiences that line up with Amber. For those that don't know, she is a licensed therapist. Um, certainly when we have the podcast episode, we'll have a better, more formal introduction. I can't remember exactly what her training is, but yeah, yeah, what the letters are, but she is a professional. Mm -hmm. I am not. Mm -hmm. And for the very most part, we agree. We've learned a lot from her. We've really just enjoyed her personality and her perspective, but there are a couple areas where we, you know, differ a little bit in approach. And so that's what we're going to debate if you will, or rumble. We're going to rumble about it. <laughs> so, really excited. That'll Are be we take bets January. going to win? Oh, I wouldn't bet on me, so I don't know why anybody else would. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, my, the, um, I'm going to place my bet on Amber. <laughs> yeah. She's pretty solid. I'm just going to give her, you know, I'm like a sparring partner for her to get her ready for whatever real yeah. real fight might be coming her way. Yeah. I'm sure she'll, <laughs> she'll win. But... It, it'll be exciting to talk about the few areas where uh, we have some just kind of slight differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. So that'll be great. That'll be sometime in late January. That one will drop. So those are the uh, preamble promotional things we wanted to talk about. Today we're going to talk about um, remembering why we fall in love. I think this is an important, a really important topic and a really great one to hit on the start of the year, to help people to find a way to kind of wipe the guilt slate clean. I don't want to get ahead of myself though, so let's let's back up and kind of explain what we're talking about. Alcoholic relationships necessarily create conflict. It's unavoidable. When when alcoholism, when addiction enters the relationship, the goals of the two parties the values, the behaviors, they're no longer aligned. Mm -hmm. They might be aligned in spoken word or in in intention, but in action, there is conflict. I, for instance, said things to you like, you know, I never lie to you, Sherry, and I didn't mean to lie, and I didn't really think I was lying. But when I say to you, I'm only going to have a couple and we'll leave the party early, 
and then we end up staying for five hours and I have 14 beers. To you, that's a lie, right? Yeah, that is a lie. To me, that was like, hey, we were having fun. I got a little carried away. No big deal, you know? Um, So I didn't view that as a lie, but my behaviors didn't align with the commitment that I had made to you that we would make it an early night. Yeah, because... The no big deal, like you said. Yeah, it's no big deal. We were having fun. Well, maybe you were having fun. Maybe I was not having fun. Maybe I didn't feel good going in. But it was that disrespect, so therefore it was a disrespect and a lie. Disrespecting me and my opinion and then lying on top of it to get what you want out of it. Absolutely. So it was like a double whammy. So you would, especially once we had kids, you would think of a neighborhood party like that. You would think your top priority are your family values is taking care of your kids. And I would think, you know, hey, we're, we're still fun-loving adults and we deserve the right to cut loose sometimes. And so values that were once aligned and, and that I would, if if ever questioned, I would absolutely say my family comes first. Uh-huh. But in action, it, it didn't always. Yeah. And so that misalignment creates conflict. And sometimes the conflict is loud. You and I were arguers, and, you know, sometimes the arguments got really nasty. Sometimes the words spoken were just awful, awful, awful. Sometimes the volume was was bad. But we, we certainly know there are lots of people for whom that kind of outward expression of conflict was not their way. And sometimes the conflict is quiet. The silent treatment, for instance, that's something we've addressed on the podcast. That's something we've addressed in our groups where one party just decides they're so mad at the other person. They're not going to not only not going to speak to them, they're not going to acknowledge them. They're going to pretend that they don't exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's kind of an extreme version of quiet conflict. But there's also just, you know, kind of retracting and pulling away. And I'm not going to give you the silent treatment, but I'm going to go sulk in the basement and drink my beer and lick my wounds and I'm going to skip meals and I'm not going to participate with the family. Exactly. Or participate with the chores and duties. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, but that doesn't mean it's not conflict just because there isn't yelling and screaming. Right. I mean, both parties feel terrible. And you and I did some of that as well. We never did the silent treatment thing to the degree that we've heard about it from other people. But we did the loud version of conflict and we did the quiet version of conflict. And it's, it's tough. Um, it's the, the real tragedy of alcoholic relationships, unless the alcoholism leads to things like job loss and financial collapse or DUI or God forbid, injury or death or, you know, save from that having happened. If you stay in that high functioning alcoholic kind of area, like, like I did, this is not me bragging, but the truth is I didn't suffer any of those outward and obvious consequences. So if you stay in that high functioning alcoholism zone, the real tragedy of alcoholism is the conflict. And Gosh, I, I just couldn't feel more passionate about anything than I feel about this. The tragedy in that conflict is that you take the safest place that the people in the relationship have, or should have at least, 
which is the home where the, the place is sacred and safe and the relationship has this mutual protect, protection agreement, which we've talked about many times. But, you know, we basically say, hey, let's bond our lives together. I'll take care of you. You take care of me. We'll take on the world together. So I, I like to call that a mutual protection agreement. And you take this place, this sacred safe place, and you take this sacred safe relationship and you create conflict that just destroys the sacred safe relationship. Maybe I shouldn't say destroys the relationship right away, but destroys the safety in the relationship. So I gotta go to work, you gotta go to work, I gotta go do kids things, you gotta go do kids things. We interact in the community. All of those places and things are inherently less safe than you would want your home life to be. You can run into conflict with mean people. You can have a car accident. You can slip on the ice. You know, all kinds of things can go bad out there in the big bad world. But the safe place and the safe relationship, that is so important. And that's probably why I'm dwelling on it and repeating myself over and over. Because... God, like my wish for our kids as they enter adulthood is, I don't care what you do career-wise. I don't care if you don't make any money. I don't care about any of that. I care that if you choose to bond yourself to somebody else, that that always remains the safest place in your life. Mm -hmm. That is so, so, so important. Yeah, and I would even venture to say not even bonding yourself, but then choosing roommates because, you know, they're young adults. They're going to have roommates yeah. in college and, you know, but even, or, or friends, like... You know, being manipulated and gaslit and and mistreated by people that you have, you know, not always in a romantic relationship, but even in a friendship and companion, you know, there is nothing more, I think, more heartbreaking in a way and more make, and oh, I guess a better way to describe, like, breaks your self-esteem down. Like, why is this person always, like, hot and cold? Or why are they nice and sometimes not nice? Like... To like toxic people and they don't even probably know they're doing it necessarily. Yeah. So I always feel like it just breaks the self-confidence down and that's what kind of with breaking that safety in your apartment or house that you're renting or, you know, in the relationship that you have with this person, the reliability is broken and it makes you internalize, well, what am I doing to, to make this happen? Or maybe I'm really not feeling this way and I'm just making it up in my head so we gaslight ourselves. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you, you kind of segued into the the next point I wanted to make really, really well. Almost as though we had prepared this topic and gotten <laughs> Everybody the knows page. we don't. <laughs> but that gaslighting, the deflected blame, right? The, you know, the, I'm moody and my mood keeps swinging and you never know what to expect because of the alcohol and you've got that to deal with and you've got me telling you you're the problem Sherry you just don't know how to be a wife and we have relationship problems we don't have alcohol problems all that deflected blame all that gaslighting it results in guilt it results in anger it results in conflict it results in lots of things but it also results in guilt from you because even if you mostly don't believe any of what I'm saying some of it seeps in especially when you didn't have a support group, when you thought you were the only one suffering the way you were, you know, because you didn't realize how many literally millions of 
high-functioning alcoholics are, there are that are married to millions of suffering spouses out there, some of my gaslighting got through. Mm-hmm. Even as strong and smart as you are, some of what I said, you know, you would say, well, maybe he's right. Maybe I am a bad wife. Maybe, maybe my alcoholic father did set me up for not knowing how to, you know, be married or, right? I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but some of it seeped in, right? Yeah. And you would feel guilty. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I took that on and, and I, you know, wrestled with the, the like, doling out of responsibility and and trying to figure out where it came from to the point that it, like, confused me a lot. So later in life when I did counseling, it was like I had to work through that a lot. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I just had to work through it and couldn't really figure out like where it was coming from or how it was there to begin with. But, you know, with help, like that's what we figured out. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got that guilt that comes from deflected blame and gaslighting. There's also natural guilt from the conflict existing in the last place you would ever have expected. I mean, you chose me and I chose you. And so you got to, you start to wonder, is my chooser broken? Did I bring this on myself? How did I pick this person that I now have this conflict with? And you look around, right? And you see on you see smiling vacation photos on social media. And you have these superficial interactions with people. And you don't imagine anything's wrong in their relationships. So you've got to think, gosh, we fight all the time. I must have chosen poorly well and there's guilt from that too yeah and i also i mean we you and i have personally talked about it on many many occasions but i think we've mentioned you know like people you know for me it wasn't like oh i'm automatically in love with matt at first sight you like that was not um my experience there were a lot of things that were very attractive about you that i saw and so because they weren't all based in love um you know, and I, I've like gotten over that, but I felt like at the time when we were arguing and fighting and things weren't going well, I felt like, well, this is my punishment. I mean, I loved you, but I didn't love you like head over heels, that romantic sort of love at first sight sort of thing. And there were just a lot of really great characteristics that you had about you that I realized, no, that's like my body saying, this is the person that you need because you're going to be compatible with and they're going to be able to provide the things that you can't do for yourself. Not like I couldn't do it financially, but emotionally perhaps, you know? So I felt like somehow it was punishment for me for, for maybe being a little greedy in my choosing. Oh yeah. You know, I've said like, I deserve this. I, I, it's a punishment. God's telling me, well, you didn't choose based on love Yeah. at the beginning, you know? Even though I did love you, it was just, there were a lot of I, things I don't think it's uncommon to have practicality be part of your chooser. Yeah. But I, I mean, you know, a... like you're young and you don't understand and you're trying to figure it out. And, you know, and I'm sure there were conversations where, you know, we had talked and where you didn't feel like I chose you out of love and it was an argument. So yeah. then I felt like that was sort of my punishment. Huh. Uh, yeah. That, that fits. That fits exactly what we're talking about. The list of things that can create that guilt is long. A few others. Maybe for you, listener, this is not your first alcoholic relationship. We encounter lots of people who 
and you can hear it. You can hear it in their voice, mm-hmm. in their stories they tell. There is so much guilt that they've, you know, to use their words, not mine, but they've gotten themselves into this pickle again. They had this awful first marriage and they escaped alcoholism and they thought, you know, no matter what I do, I'm never going to put myself in that situation again. And then it happens again. And boy, does that bring guilt on for people. Um, Guilt also comes from missed red flags. It's interesting once you start to educate yourself about alcoholism, you can look back on the behaviors that you excused or dismissed and say, oh my God, that is a glaring red flag. But if you don't have that education and nobody nobody comes into their you know, young adulthood relationships equipped with an education about alcoholism, it's just not something that happens. Even if you've experienced it in your home as a child, it's not the same. In fact, I would argue that if you've experienced it as a child, you probably are less able to pick up on the red flags because the dangerous alcoholic behavior that you witness is normalized for you because you saw that growing up. Yeah. So missed red flags, When once you get that education, you start to understand what you're up against and you look back. Oh, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I see that? Why did I get myself into this? Well, That can create a lot of guilt too. Well, what happens, I think, with that type of relationship... Um, scenario that you just spoke about is that if you had it in your childhood and you're living it in your marital relationship, there is a um, you know a role that's very comforting to fill that you find yourself in. You know, you're you're just like maybe if you were the mediator in your family as a child, you know, or trying to solve the resolve the conflict. And now you're dealing with someone who is heavily drinking and there are issues. Like, the problem solver role is very comfortable for you most of the time, yeah. I think. You know, and you you mentioned that it was normalized, but it's also, you know, familiar. Yeah. It's what you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know a lot of people feel guilty. I'm curious about your perspective on this. A lot of people feel guilty, too, because they drank heavily, too with their spouse before they matured and got it under control. Often, there's kind of a break point at childbirth. A lot of the people that we meet, when the woman has her first child, the nurturing instinct kicks in, and the desire to get drunk every weekend goes away. And so there's kind of a fork in the road. And we alcoholics keep on partying, and the spouses just priority shift and it's all about family and so I know we've met a lot of people who who then feel guilty you know if I hadn't led him on if I hadn't partied with him to begin with then I mean because a lot because you know what the tactic is on from my side of the fence when that happens you're the one who changed you're the one who changed yeah I I heard that over and over yeah so I so I'm curious about your answer did you feel I mean, you never drank like I drank. You just never did because you would get hangovers. and. But you did party with me when partying was the appropriate thing. You didn't come home every day after work and pour a drink. But did you ever feel guilty? Like, why did I drink with him and give him the indication that I was a party girl? Um, 
I think that there were a lot of things that I feel like I was not really representing myself when we first met. Drinking was one of them because I did get a lot of hangovers and anytime I would go out with you, then I had to make sure that my schedule was pretty clear for the next day. Um, and um, because I did, you know, suffer. Um, I also felt like I was still trying to figure out who I was. So yeah, I gave the wrong impression while I was trying to figure out like, well, maybe if I drink more, maybe I'll get used to it. Maybe I'll become more tolerant of it. And, you know, and I want to hang out with you and that's what you did. So I made it seem like that's what I wanted to do. Um, I think as we moved out from college and had our first jobs out of college, I was shocked that you continued to drink like that. Um, and immediately I started to like question it. Um, so I think that there had always been a conflict, but I, but I don't think I felt guilty about it because I just thought, what a waste of fucking money. Like, you're not even around people drinking. Why do you want to just drink in our apartment? You know, like it, I didn't understand because I always, because when we had drank before, it was always very social. Yeah. You know, and I, I feel like, you know, we're not like how they say when two or more are gathered in God's name. We're not a church, right? Like, like me and you. Drinking isn't social. Like, yeah. social means more than, you know, than just you and I. Oh, so, I only needed me to be social. So when I had you, I was like, whoa, this is way yeah. social drinking. So I just, I don't think I ever had any guilt for leading you on necessarily. I felt like I just really let you down in a way because I represented myself incorrectly. But... We were 20s, you know, so, um, you know, that's what we did. You definitely gave the impression that <laughs> the maturing that you did was natural and that you had the expectation that I would mature similarly. You never gave me the impression that, that yes, I was the one that stayed consistent. I kept drinking. You were the one that changed by not drinking and partying like we used to. But you, I mean, when you would look to me, look at me or talk to me about it, you definitely gave me the, the impression that you were like, I'm on the right normal path. You're the one that's got the problem. Yeah. Even though we used to both drink heavily, we're in our late 20s, we're in our 30s now. Like, it, you never gave me the impression that you felt like, oh, I wonder if it is my fault. Yeah, I didn't feel like that. Probably because yeah. I didn't grow in a, grow up in a home. I mean, Your mom didn't drink. My, like my mom didn't drink. Like, and when she did, it was very rarely with her with one of her good friends. And or, she you always know. prioritized her kids. And yeah, so. and then you know, and because I had an alcoholic father, there was that disdain for it. But my mom's family, none of them really drank at all. So, um, you know, it wasn't meant to have a good time. It was meant to be done occasionally. And there were other forms of entertainment as an adult outside of college yeah. that I felt like, or just the responsibilities of having a job and maintaining bills, you know, yeah. and living out of state from our families. It just was a lot more responsibility. So probably the most heartbreaking example of the guilt that you can feel that results from the conflict of an alcoholic relationship is the guilt that you feel about letting it affect the kids. As my alcoholism progressed, as our relationship struggles progressed, 
whether it was arguments that we had, even though we tried really hard not to argue in front of the kids, but just the tension in the air, me sulking in the basement, all of the things that took place that the, the very, our kids are very intuitive because all kids are very intuitive. The things that they were picking up on that I had no idea. You know, I thought we were doing a good job hiding it from them. I didn't understand how much they were picking up on. That that was some serious guilt for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Probably still is. It still is. It's, I mean, it's because you can't go back and change the past. So lots of guilt from, like, not being able to do things with them because you were unreliable or um, emotionally or driving wise or just the guilt of them arguing and then we're like get up and go to school the next day and act like nothing happened you know um to the point of like just not you know knowing that everything had to revolve around making sure that you had alcohol whether it was going to the zoo or going out to lunch or going to an amusement park you know yeah i wouldn't say everything but most things so, and the guilt of just them having to bear witness to my tension and, you know, and I didn't like you a lot of times. So it wasn't a lot of fun. There wasn't a lot of laughing or just yeah. being at home and playing silly board games, you know, on a Friday night. Like we had to watch a movie and I think it was just so you could, I mean, movies are fun and everything, but then you didn't really have to engage that much. Yeah. Because they were being entertained by the the movie yeah yeah I think that's the guilt that lingers certainly it lingers for me but I think it haunts you I think that is really hard for you because you've got the mother's nurturing instincts that I have a tremendous amount of respect for and admiration for it's just different for me but I can see I mean we're talking about some really difficult subjects here again and this is the one that's made you emotional yeah. When we talk about the yeah, kids. and I mean you you go into the relationship with you know, like we even kind of had a plan, right? Like I said, you know, I had a working mother growing up, a single working mother and I wanted to be home as much as possible. Right. If we had children. And you know, so for me it was very thought out and I know that plans change and things happen and you roll with it, but I just felt like you just circumvented that in a lot of ways. You wouldn't let me have that joy that I was anticipating because I didn't want to have the same kind of um, things growing up where there was arguing. Even though my parents were divorced, there was still, like, they lived in the same town and co-parented, so there was still arguments between them, and I didn't want to see our children. I didn't want our children to see that. I wanted them to have two stable, reliable parents yeah. at all the, all the time. Because also, my mom had a lot of stress, and she was not necessarily reliable and safe. And she was very emotional, and I'm, I know I'm emotional, and I can't hide it as best as I tried. I don't think you're overly emotional. I think you're normally emotional. And I think of all the things that my alcoholism caused in the way of negative... Impacts. this is the one that I feel the worst about. And I think your, your lingering guilt and the fact that you get emotional so quickly helps me to continue to feel bad about it. And I think that's a good thing. Because um, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there this is a generational 
disease and that, you know, it's too late for you and I to have a perfect little marriage and it's too late for us to have kids who were not impacted. But it is not too late for it to end here with us and our kids and for us to work together to make sure that it doesn't happen for their kids, hopefully. And so the pain and how on the surface the emotions are for you is helpful to me as a reminder that this is really important, that we help our kids to the degree that they'll let us help to make sure that if they choose to have kids that their kids don't ever have to suffer like this. It's really important. So let's talk about defeating the guilt and getting over the guilt. One strategy to defeat the guilt is to grieve the loss of the life that you wanted or that you expected. I think this is really important. I didn't know until we started kind of going down this recovery path and doing this work. I always thought of grieving as something you did when somebody died. And I thought that was the only purpose for having a grieving process. But we have since come to realize and to see some wonderful examples where people grieve the life that they thought that they were going to have. I mean, when think about it. I can't. I can't think of a single situation where you go into a marriage without high expectations. You go in, you wouldn't have gotten married. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, get across that threshold and say, I do. Okay, you're making a... Well, I mean, I think there are circumstances where people feel forced to get married and they don't have a whole lot of a high expectations. Like shotgun marriage because someone's pregnant? Possibly, or just a, you know, well, I just need to get out of the house you know, have a terrible upbringing and I have to get out of the house. So this person is the least of, you know, the devil than my abusive parents are or whatever. But most generally, people choose relationships and choose to get married, going into it optimistically and hopeful. Yeah. That's interesting that you say that. I don't disagree. Everything you said is right. There are reasons beyond love and this idealistic picture of what you're hoping to have there are reasons besides that why people get married but of all of the people that we met and of all the relationships and couples that we know I can't think of a single example of that so maybe it's just because this is our little groove uh, you know we, we meet people who were in high functioning alcoholic relationships and I well like I said I just I don't know. Everyone that I can think of, they got married because they thought this is the one. And maybe, are you saying that because you had some more practical reasons for marrying me? Maybe you didn't think this is the one and this is going to be great. How did you view our marriage? Well, I'm not saying that you weren't the one and it wasn't going to be great. I'm just thinking of generalities like if you grew up in an abusive home because we just talked about people continuing the cycle and marrying someone who has an has a substance abuse issue yeah because that's something they're familiar with and they're growing up to and they get married to escape maybe there is some optimism and some hope there that they hope it's going to be better than what they've had you know so i guess everybody you know there is hope but I don't think that they have, like, I don't think everybody has super high expectations. Yeah. But I'm not saying you're 
But I don't mean to say that you're wrong. I'm just saying there are some people that are, have more realistic expectations. But you certainly don't expect alcohol or a, addiction to take over your entire life and cause so much chaos in every aspect of yeah. the relationship that it does and that it reaches all these other people. Yeah. You think it would be a slightly contained. Yeah. Yeah. So that greeting process is really helpful in defeating the guilt. One part of the greeting pro grieving process is remembering the person that you fell in love with. I think it helps with that guilt of how did I get myself in this place? Um, oh, you know, this is not my first alcoholic relationship. How did I fall for another alcoholic? How did I miss all those red flags? How did I drink heavily with this person too? You know, this is, this is my fault because I led them on that kind of a thing. Um, but if you, if you take some time and really remember the person that you married, and one of the reasons that I, I thought this would be a good topic is because this has come up for us in interacting with other people recently. We've heard some really cool stories about the alcoholics in these relationships. We've heard some wonderful things that they, they have done. And it makes you go, oh, yeah, this is still a human. This is a person suffering from a disease. This isn't an evil person. Right. You know, we talk all the time about the lying and the gaslighting and the deceit. Selfishness. Yeah. But it's not because we are ingrained, natural, naturally evil people. Right. It's because we have fallen down this hole and we're suffering. And so when we don't live up to the expectations or when we don't live up to those shared values, it isn't because our ideals about the values have changed. It's because our, we can't do it anymore. Our behavior, you know, we, we've been hijacked and our behavior can't live up to the, the shared values that we continue to have theoretically. Yeah. We just can't do it practically. Well, and I think that's why it's, just lobbing this out there. I think that's why it's sometimes really hard to confide in your family because they may have seen a few of the things that um, your partner did that, yeah, they're a nice guy, but they didn't know, or a nice gal, they didn't know the behind-the-scenes stuff, the little things yeah. that happened. You know, like... The good little things you're Yes, exactly. Right. The, the good, like, like, my grandfather made my grandmother breakfast almost every morning when I was a little kid and I would go stay at their house. Like he got up earlier. He was just, and he always made her breakfast and it was sitting on her tray, you know, yeah. like ready to go. If she wanted to take it back to her room and eat in bed, whatever. I mean, he just like took care of her. But then I'm sure there were lots of stories where he was kind of gruff. He was kind of a rough and gruff kind of guy that grew up in a pretty strict home. So, but that you breakfast know, would be that, that kind of endearing but that would be thing that, in, exactly. that she so, fell in love with. Exactly. That he did find ways to take care of her and look after her. You know, and so there are lots, there are a thousand things that are just these little good little things that you fall in love with that get, like you said, hijacked or that's not seen by others. Yeah. So when you're like 
talking about and crying about, you know, to your friends and family about the relationship and the drinking or the other addictions <clears throat> that coexist, gambling, sex, whatever, they can easily say, well, just divorce them yeah. or just break off the relationship, move out, kick them out, whatever. But it's so hard to do because you've chosen this person and it's not maybe guilt. It's because you're like, I know this person. And when you, I know this person is not wanting to be like this. And when you reach out for support, you don't reach out and talk about how they make you breakfast every morning. You reach out and talk about the hard parts. That's human nature. That's right. natural. You don't need support with having someone make you breakfast every morning. But then you if, need support with someone calling you a bitch every night. Yeah, but then if you did try to like in, interject those, they're like, you're just making excuses. Yeah, that. That can happen as well. You know, that's something you, you probably hear. But it wouldn't be natural for you to tell the full story anyway. You want to talk about the part that hurts. You yeah, need you help. Need help. You're looking hurt. for help with the part that hurts, not the part that feels great. Yeah. So, you know, telling an incomplete story is not a criticism on the loved one. It's just natural. And so remembering, I mean, another example of that, I love that story about the breakfast every morning. Another example, it's, we're coming out of the holiday season, one that we heard, and I feel I feel like it's okay to share this because I won't name the person's name, but somebody in in our writing prompt in our Echoes of Recovery group this holiday season, she talked about how she grew up in a, in the Jewish faith and her eventual husband was not Jewish, but he still she and as she described it when the drinking was bad when the drinking was not bad no matter what every year he still gave her a gift for hanukkah each of the eight nights of hanukkah mm -hmm. you know good times bad times worst of times whatever he was consistent and that was his way of respecting her and her you know when they came together and he found out she was jewish i mean i'm not i'm putting myself in his position a little bit but i could see saying okay if I'm going to make this relationship work, I have to show a level of respect for that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to respect this custom. And uh, I just think that's a beautiful story. Yeah. And so this is someone we've known for a long time, and she just shared with us that he did. He does that consistently. Mm -hmm. And it made me, you know. And respecting her upbringing and. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me respect him. And it makes me, it makes me think about him you know, in a really endearing way. And so I can imagine as the spouse or the partner of someone who has been or is an active alcohol alcoholic, when you've got all this guilt surrounding that, thinking back to those nice things, that that is a part of the grieving process. I wish it was always like that, but at least I have this nugget. At least I have this or I had this depending on the circumstance. And I didn't chose, choose poorly. I chose wisely. This this person is valuable. This was a good decision. Whether the relationship lasts or not, the choice at the time made sense because look at this wonderful, endearing characteristic of this person. Mm -hmm. This this makes this person of high value and makes my decision to partner with them of high value as well. Mm -hmm. The last example of that, this is one... We heard years ago, and I will never forget this one. This is someone who is divorced from her alcoholic spouse. Um, she did everything she could think of, tried everything she could think of from 
you know, over, not overcompensating, what's the word? Um, from doing everything for him, uh, you know, over-functioning, over-functioning, setting up appointments, finding support, doing everything to then eventually detaching and trying that approach. She did everything. She learned everything she could about alcoholism. Very, very smart person. And when it just was clear that it wasn't going to work out and she eventually got a divorce, she has a picture. I don't know if she still does, but recently she had a picture of her husband on her refrigerator. And it was a picture of him from early in the relationship before the alcohol got a hold of him. And I remember asking her about that. And I thought it strange that even in divorce, she still had this picture of a younger version, a healthier version of her husband. And she said, oh, that picture is very important. I want to remember him that way. That's the man I met. That's the man I fell in love with. And I thought, what a beautiful tribute. Even as alcoholism has ravaged the relationship and ravaged his health, that she still finds that to be important. Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? It is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think not only is it a cool story, but I think it's helpful for her. I think it would be helpful for anyone in that situation to have that reminder. Here is this lovely person. I didn't make a bad choice. Mm -hmm. I made a great choice. Yeah. And things just didn't work out because sometimes they don't. Yep. Yeah. So you kind of alluded to this earlier. And I'm not doing this just to stroke my ego. There is a purpose to this because I want to make a comparison. What You've talked about this on the podcast before, but what were some of the attributes that you liked about me? Why did you cho choose me? Um, well, I thought you had a really funny sense of humor. I thought you were... It sounds like I'm just... Really, sucking up for a I know. here. It does. It feels like I it's I kind of regret asking this question. <laughs> um, I knew it was coming, though, so I was, like, thinking ahead. So yeah, if I, I answered one of your questions earlier, that maybe didn't sound right, just because I was thinking. Um, no, well, so this is this is one that kind of popped out when we were talking about before the, high, the alcohol hijacked. So you were not arrogant or overly confident in any sort of disgusting fashion you did seem self-assured but not overly when we first met and you were goofy and you could feel very confident being goofy we've mentioned many times that we worked at a very busy college bar at a big tin school that had lots and lots of drinking um and there were events where like, we would put you in a costume and put you out there as, this, this is very terrible, but this is what we called the shot whore. Typically, it was a cute little sorority girl that went out trying to sell shooters, you know, for a buck. And for some, a buck. It'd be like $7 <laughs> test today. Tubes. Yeah, they were little test tube shooters. And, but sometimes you'd be like, well, let's throw Matt out there. And you willingly do it, like coconut bra, like you had your shirt on. But, you know, you go in goofy... And you would do that, and there would be some of your fraternity brothers or, you know, that or other people you knew, and you didn't care. You didn't give a shit. And I liked that, and it was, like I said, it was like a self-assuredness, but not a self-confident. That was gross. That, and because I thought it was humorous, and you had the ability to um, laugh at yourself, being silly like that. 
I found that very endearing because I kind of felt like I was grew up, even though I feel like I had a lot of friend groups, I felt like I was always trying to find myself and I would be really worried probably doing that. So there was this self-confidence and self-assuredness that wasn't gross and overly exaggerated. When alcohol started to become more and more prevalent and like after your first job and you're always saying yes to people and you're always working extra hard and you're always trying to be super nice and this was just to like everybody and then you know time went on and alcohol Those went on. Those are some of my underlying issues and reasons for addiction. Always saying yes. People pleaser. Anyway. Go yes, on. But, but then, th thanks for talking about some of my underlying <laughs> issues because you're right. So those started to creep up. And then, but then to like counter that and always want to make people like you. And, but you always wanted to like come out on top. So that sort of um, like playfulness that you had became a show. Look how silly I am. Look how great I am. Look at this. Look at that. Look at me. And it was like abundant and overdone. You would act that way in front of your parents. Like we would, you know, we had these family talent shows. Your sister and her family didn't want to do them at all, so they barely did anything. We had to have like this song and dance and made sure our kids had something great to do. Um, I mean, and it, and I'm sure it's because you did somewhere in the back of your mind enjoy it, but it just it had to be so much, or you had to be so goofy, or you had to be the last word with the funniest comment. Yeah. And it came too much. And that self-assuredness like turned into masking and covering up with a bad ego. Yeah. Like being right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, inability to relax, inability to be comfortable with myself, always chasing something more, always you know, putting tons of pressure on myself. Or topping your last yeah. funny thing or good thing. Really, you always really unhealthy. Top. At the time... At the time, I always felt like, oh, you know, like you compared us to my sister and her family. I was always like, oh, you know, we're on it. Look how on it we are. And now I see how much healthier it was that they were like, this is silly. Why are we doing this? And and uh, just kind of took it in stride as opposed to making it extravagant. But the but you so you made it in a really important point talking about self-confidence the self-confidence that I had and that that was one of the things that you loved about me and that's one of the things that attracted you to me. So in recovery, or even before recovery, when I would go through the cycle of drinking too much, then then licking my wounds, feeling bad, just isolating, being you know a mess, being sorry, being remorseful, being what I used to call the sobbing puddle. The sobbing puddle is so unattractive because it is the opposite of what you fell in love with. Mm -hmm. It's the antithesis of confident. Yeah. And um, so, you know, this going back to how I said earlier that what we had was a mutual protection agreement. I think that's so, so much healthier of a way to look at marriage than to, to fall back on that in sickness and in health bullshit. That in sickness and in health thing just gets weaponized. And so, you know, here I am, you, you are feeling guilt for being in this relationship with me to begin with. The thing that you want was some confidence. What you get is this sobbing puddle who, first of all, overdoes it, overdrinks, all the ramifications come with that. And then on the backside of that is just a, 
just an unattractive, you know, mess needing all this support. Um, and your recovery, the recovery for the loved ones, the things that are effective are things like detachment and boundary setting and following your instincts and rejecting insecurities. And rejecting insecurities usually means rejecting gaslighting from an alcoholic. And prioritizing yourself. This is another important part of what your recovery looks like. And by prioritizing yourself, you have to let that alcoholic figure out stuff on their own. You had to let me, you had to not, you know, glom on to the sobbing puddle when I would be a mess post-alcoholic episode. And you had to let me figure it out on my own. And all of that is right to do. All of what the recovery needs to look like for you, the loved one, is the right thing to do. But it's also contrary to your natural nurturing instinct. And so now... Not only are you in conflict with me, you are in conflict with yourself because there are big important parts of you who are saying, help this guy, fix this guy, pick this guy up when he's fallen down. And <coughs> we know that that is not effective. It's not effective for me. It's not effective for you, for your health, but that's the natural instinct that you have. So because of alcoholism, you get a double whammy of conflict. You're in conflict with me. You're in conflict with yourself because of the guilt you feel. You're in conflict with yourself because the right action for you to take in recovery is the opposite of the action that you're built to do. And depending on how much of your family is involved, whether it be your kids or the parents, you might be in conflict with them because if you decide to break away and detach and be healthy for yourself, you might be in conflict with their parents. Yeah. Because they don't think you're doing enough. Yeah. Or the kids might think, oh, well, you're just being mean to them, you know, to my other parent. Because you're not helping them or you're not taking care of them or you're not listening to them. Even though, you know, you've listened to them say the same shit for years over and over. So you also have that. In, you have the internal, you have the relationship, and then you can have the extended family and, yeah. you know, conflict. Yeah. Because I know that we've heard situations where the parent of the alcoholic has been informed of what's going on and feels that the partner needs to do all the work. You know, do yeah. everything you can to help them. Yeah. You know, basically let yourself drown saving them. Yeah. Just doesn't work. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yeah, so... Again, this is more emphasis on the, the idea, the whole kind of theme of this episode, which is take time to remember why you got together. Take time to remember what it was you loved about that person. And hopefully that'll bring you some relief to all the conflict and all the guilt, the conflict and guilt you feel about the other person, about the relationship, and also the conflict that you feel within yourself. Hopefully you can remember this is why we got together and it was the right decision in the time. It, the last thing I want to point out, though, is recovery, you and I learned this, recovery is not about trying to go back to that place. It's great to have those fond memories. It's great to have that picture on the refrigerator of who that person was. It's great to remember that they give you those gifts for the holiday that's important to you. But you can't try to get back to that place if 
that place if the the thing you're remembering is pre-alcoholism. Recovery is about moving forward. That's why recovery really isn't the right word. It isn't about going back. It's about getting to a new healthy place with that person or without that person. You know, in either case, it's about moving forward. So the memories can still be something that you're fond of. And maybe the memories can be part of the rebirth. The memories can launch you into whatever is next. Um, really important for us when we stopped trying to, well, you, there was always alcohol in our life. So the idea of going back, going back to what? Going back to being moderate drinkers, going yeah. back to being college partiers doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, that's where we, I'm like, I, there's good parts about a relationship, but if alcohol was always involved, why would you want to recover back to that? I mean, you can't. So even if you have fond memories of me being playfully, you know, confident and when drinking back in college, even if those are fond memories, you don't want to go back there. Right. You'd prefer a more mature version and a more sober version. Yeah, so then I had to had to grieve the person that I lost when addiction took hold. Yes. And had to grieve the relationship. Yes. And then I had to hopefully find a new partner, new sober partner when we were working on this and that I could and figure build, out, yeah, that I could build out a future. If that was someone you liked or not. Yeah, and then I could build a future. That is an with. open question. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think this is really important otherwise we would not have chosen it for the topic for today but just ease that guilt uh make it a fresh start it is the first day of a new year so we should be talking about things like rebirth and new and fresh start so if you're feeling guilt if you're feeling conflict cut yourself a break you made a good decision with the available knowledge at the time and also happy new year before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.